about making peace, biblical peacemaking. For some of you, this is going to be a review. If you've been going through your ACBC certification, you've studied some of this already. Uh, I have a dear friend who said he thinks this ought to be taught every year in every church, and these are things which we need to be reminded. And I'm going to be coming from the perspective of someone who, yeah, I've been for 30 years or so trying to practice these things in my own ministry, both as a pastor and a, a counselor. A large percentage of our counseling it revolves around conflict resolution, often between a husband and a wife, but it's parents and children, siblings, uh, business partners. And I will say that it's my favorite kind of counseling. I really enjoyed hearing the, de the, the story of how God has helped our dear sister with depression. But I find depression cases to be really difficult. And like you said, it's just not like quick answers. It, the, the struggle continues with even a believer there. I love peacemaking cases because I've had couples come in who were living apart, and after one or two meetings, they move back in together. And uh, this is counseling that sometimes happens very quickly, especially in real believers. And it's counseling which is focused upon the gospel as God has sent his son into the world on a peacemaking mission. And having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Christ has come to make peace, but he's also come to enable us to be peacemakers. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. And we make peace as he made peace. He made peace at great cost. He made peace sacrificially. And as we have received much grace, as he made peace with us, we seek to show that grace to others. And Jesus doesn't just show us how to make peace. He also empowers us by his spirit to make peace. Now, in the world, peace is hard to come by. There's conflict all over the place, conflict among nations, conflict in families. Some of you have seen conflict in churches, right? Uh, there's conflict all around us, and the Bible addresses this. You, you can't completely avoid conflict, but God tells you how to have peace. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And I find comfort in that verse, because Paul's acknowledging if possible, so far as it depends upon you, there are some people with whom you can't have peace, right? And probably some of you have conflicts in your life, and you've done everything you could possibly do, biblically, and still it hasn't been resolved in the way you hoped. So there's going to be conflict. You can't completely avoid it. Robert Jones says the Bible is four chapters of peace, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, with 1,185 chapters of conflict in between. Now, we know that conflict is ultimately the result of sin. In the garden, God had forbidden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, said we would die if we partook of it, and Adam rejected God's authority. Uh, the gospel itself reminds us we were enemies of God who had been reconciled to him. And so our sin alienates us from God, and then our sin alienates us from one another. As soon as Adam and Eve had sinned, they're in conflict with one another, right? The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit to eat. And actually what happens because we are sinners is the closer you are to your fellow sinner, often the more conflict there will be. And so you know this like before you were married and you were living in your separate homes and uh, you were in the dating stage and the courtship stage and it all seemed so exciting. And then you get married and I've had people say, I never knew what a sinner I was. 
hopefully you're saying I never knew what a sinner I was until I got married and, and rubbing against this other person. And I also didn't realize what a sinner I'd married. And, and there will be circumstances in life in which you will not be able to make peace. Paul was willing in Galatians 2 to confront his fellow apostle Peter because the gospel was at stake. And he opposed him face to face. He didn't just back down because that might be a little uncomfortable for people to have two apostles arguing in church. Uh, you can't sin in order to make peace. 1 Corinthians 7 even describes a situation in which an unbeliever abandons the marriage. And this is not the ideal peace situation to end the marriage, but he says if the unbelieving one lets him leave, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, for God has called us to peace. This is a, a compromised peace, not the ideal. But it's comforting to me in Romans twelve eighteen that God does not hold you responsible for the sinful failures of others. Hebrews tells us in chapter 13 to pursue peace with all men, and that's good. You should be a peace pursuer, but you don't have the power to make peace on your own. You need the help of God. Now, conflict is very dangerous, and I'm going to rely a lot on material I'm sure most of you are familiar with. I saw the book out there, The Peacemaker, written by Ken Sandy, and we had him to dinner probably the first time 20 years ago, and he was explaining how, as an attorney, again, a Christian, he got so frustrated watching Christians suing each other and mistreating each other. He wrote The Peacemakers, what he called a systematic theology of biblical peacemaking, and it's a magnificent resource. And one thing I would encourage you to get that I wish I would have brought a stack of them with me. We actually have these trifold brochures from Peacemaker Ministries that summarize uh, that entire book. And if you've read the book, it's like a Cliff's Notes. And I keep usually a stack of them in my Bible, and I probably on an average week use two or three of these where it goes through what I'm going through in the two sessions today. But one helpful tool he has in there is it's called the Slippery Slope. And the idea being that there are unbiblical ways of dealing with conflict and biblical ways. And there, there's some people who on, on one end, kind of the red end to the far right, are fighters in the midst of a conflict. And you know, they want to take revenge, returning evil for evil, and uh, not acknowledging that vengeance call, belongs to God. There'll be verbal attacks, uh, murderous anger. Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5, in the proverb, it says, with his mouth the godless man destroys his neighbor. In counseling, part of the pain of counseling, you hear a couple talking, and I wish I'd never married you. I want to divorce you. You know, I'm disgusted by you. And, and people, in their sinful anger, say horrible things. And so, in the midst of conflict, someone feels they're wrong. Uh, it, sometimes it's not the tongue. Sometimes it's physical assault, physical abuse. Uh, I'll do a workshop on that. Even murder, uh, lawsuits. I've seen believers. I saw one time a a Christian man and his professing Christian mom, and they were living together. They owned a lot of uh, property, rental homes together, and the man decided to get married. The mom didn't want him to get married. And we tried to intervene and mediate between them because uh, they owned like five houses jointly, rental houses, and, and they wound up going to court, and they lost everything to the, the attorneys, essentially. And it was so tragic because... You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that these things should be resolved in the church. So there's some people who fight. They'll never back down. There are other people who run from conflict. There, there are some people that 
when conflict comes, they just try to ignore it. They, the sun goes down on their anger, and, and they just try to sweep it into the carpet. We'll talk about it later. Uh, my observation is most married couples have one of each. Uh, one person who's inclined, we're not going to go to sleep until we work this thing through, and chasing the other person around the house. And there's often the other one who just says, I just don't even want to think about this. We'll just go to sleep, and maybe it'll go away tomorrow. Uh, both sides need to learn. The, the problem is an unresolved conflict uh, has potential to get much worse. Uh, the Lord gave our church a building about 20 years ago, and I remember when we first got the building, a little side yard there, and there was this little twig that a, a seed had blown from a tree into our yard. And I remember seeing this little twig, and it was about that tall, and whoever mowed the grass the first time went around the twig. This what do we have now 20 years later? A big, tall tree that's into the phone lines. And there's so many conflicts that you could, when dealing with it early on, it's like you could, with two fingers, pull that thing out. Now we'd need to get a permit. We'd need to, you know, bring an outside contractor. And you've got this massive tree there. And a lot of times, by the way, in counseling, by the time they call you, you're dealing with a sequoia of a problem. And it's become so big because it's been swept under the rug. And so, again, people run. Some people, you know, they leave churches, right? Some people just every few years. Every time they join a new church, they find another center in that church, and it's not perfect. And rather than dealing with it, they go. It, divorce is a form of that, just breaking off relationships. Suicide is the ultimate escape from conflict. And so conflict is dangerous, but it also brings opportunity. And it's something I think is really great that Ken Sandy brings out, that Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And, and that would include arguing and fighting in the context of marriage, to learn how to speak the truth and love to each other, to learn how to build each other up and not tear each other down. I actually get excited when I'm in a conflict or when I get to mediate in a conflict because I, I want to see what God is going to do. I, I don't try to create conflict, but I've seen God work so Powerfully, And in the world, they have no answer, just like for depression. What are they going to do? Give you a pill. And with the world in conflict, it's fight for your rights. And they have no gospel. They have, have no real means of resolving conflict sacrificially. But we have, from the Word of God, which is sufficient, uh, the means to honor God and even bear testimony to others. It's an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, and it's often through trials and conflicts that God does that for us. It gives us opportunity to serve others as Christ has served others. And as I said, it is a witness to a watching world. And so positively, uh, you know, we want to do what we can to prevent sinful conflict by pursuing peace, pursuing peace with all men. Uh, a lot of that is the attitude. Do not stir up strife, to have an attitude of humility. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Uh, something that, two things that I've been learning even in recent years that have really impacted me. One is the propensity to judge, and that comes so much into conflict, where in our hearts we, we, we gain some sinister pleasure from bringing condemnation to others. James 4 when Paul says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, later he says, 
Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? A problem that some people have, maybe some of you have, many of my counselees have, is they are quarrelsome. They like to argue. Uh, Glenn and I might find this when you go to a conference uh, and you're sitting down with somebody. This happened to me last week in church when we had a visitor come and he was a pastor from another church visiting the area and I introduced myself and he kind of wanted to know where am I coming from and I explained where I went to school and where I teach and some other things and he said, are you for Israel? Well, what do you mean by that? And he wanted to make sure I was a premillennial, dispensational, da 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 and I don't want to make any of you mad by telling you I'm not, but um, you know, it's just like two sentences came out of this man's mouth, and he wanted, you know, we, we might agree on 99% of the London Baptist Confession of Faith or other things, but he wanted to find the thing, and right before the church service starts, he wants to argue. There are people that way about, you know, you're telling a story, and, you know, the spouse interrupts. No, it was last Monday, not last Sunday, and, you know, we were at this park and not that park, and, but then it becomes sometimes quite hostile, where there's a lack of trust. You're regarding the other person as an enemy, and just the quarreling and the fighting, and it becomes an opportunity for kind of a gotcha game where uh, I'm going to catch you in a sin, I'm going to point out your wrongs, not for the purpose of restoring you, but for tearing you down. And, and this is totally, totally destructive. An angry man stirs up strife, a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Uh, I'm going to talk in a later session about being careful with our words, so I'll, I'll pass by most of that for now. You know what it is, you one other principle that he has, and Ken Sandy has in the Peacemaker material, he calls it the pause principle. Uh, I think that even comes from be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, would be prepare for peacemaking. When you're in a conflict or when you're mediating the conflict, to pray, to plan before you jump right in. The plans of the diligent lead to advantage. Some of us learned last night. And then I want to dwell for a moment on, on the affirmation part. Uh, Ken would emphasize the fact that when you're in the midst of a conflict, I think it's helpful to point out this relationship is really important to me. Actually, it's more important to me than getting my way in this conflict. It's more important to me. As an example, I had a situation where a tax attorney, a Christian tax attorney, had told me one time, hey, if you have any questions, send me an email, I'll answer you. And I did that a couple times, and he would send me back a short answer. And then one time I sent him a question, and I got back, like a three-page answer from one of his associates, and then I got a bill for $750. I was not expecting this. <laughs> and so I wrote him a brief note, and I said, I understand the labor is worthy of his hire, and, and yet I didn't really expect a bill for $750. I'm sure the service was worth that. Uh, can we work something out here where I pay half or something? Since, But I said, I want you to know our relationship is more important to me than $750. And if you believe that I'm obligated to pay you that, I will pay you that. And we worked out something very amicably, and I've never again asked him a question. Um, But in a marriage, I'll tell a couple that your relationship is more important than the issue about what you're arguing, about where to go on vacation or how to spend the money or some of these other things, to, to acknowledge that, that after you forget what you've argued about, the impact of this argument on your relationship is going to last a lot longer. And then something else I'm going to pull into this briefly is 
there's a book some of you are familiar with by Sam Crabtree. Uh, he was, he's an executive pastor at Bethlehem Baptist where John Piper was for so many years. And we had him out for a conference. And if you want, the audios are on our website for free uh, on IBCD. But he, he wrote a book called Practicing Affirmation. It was something really that impacted me as a biblical counselor because you know, we as biblical counselors are very afraid of anything that smells like self-esteem because we know in the last days men will be lovers of self and that's a bad idea. But what he shows, it's called Practicing Affirmation, is God-centered praise of those who are not God. And what he does is he shows that affirmation is actually biblical. In Proverbs 31, the husband of the godly, virtuous woman praises her and encourages her. You know, many women have done well. You excel them all. When Paul writes the Corinthians, he begins by praising the things they're doing well. Now, is Corinth like this model church we all want to be like? No, even, but even in the Corinthians, Paul could find something to praise. You look at the letters of Jesus to the churches, in, seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and in most of them, even before he critiques them, he brings out what's good. And what Crabtree is saying is that it's biblical and proper to acknowledge the good work of God in other people. And to say, I, like Paul would say, I thank God for you. I thank God that he's made you diligent. I thank God that he's made you faithful. I thank God that you guys are here today on time wanting to do this. Most of you are awake. That's good. I forgive those of you who aren't so good at that. Um, and and what, he, what Crabtree points out is that criticism is so destructive to relationships. And he says it's like when you affirm people, you're, you're making a deposit in the bank of relationship. And when you crit- criticize them, you're making a withdrawal from the bank of relationship. And, and the problem is, is that one criticism is probably like a 10 withdrawal of affirmation. You know, there's this ratio there. And if you're in conflict and you're correcting, and correcting is sometimes proper, what Crabtree says is you can get so overdrawn in the bank of relationship where someone feels so condemned, so criticized by you, they just quit listening. And so something that God has helped me to do and I've tried to teach others to do, it's something I try to do in my counseling, is like Paul says in Philippians 4, if it's a thing good, wise, true, noble, dwell on these things, I have become a, an investigator of that which is affirmable. When people come for counseling, there's a lot wrong with them. I have an adult son living with me. There's plenty I can criticize and there's a, quite a bit I will sometimes have to correct. But to be on a search and a quest to find what is affirmable and to affirm it in a biblical way. And, and what that does is then when you come for correction or when you're in conflict, this person knows, you know, he's for me. He appreciates this in me. I try and counsel ease to affirm, you know, what homework they did. I try to affirm, I'm really glad you did that. Thank you for being on time. Thank you for being able to listen to me when it's hard for you to hear what I'm saying then when you come to have to bring the correction or work out the conflict, it, it's much more effective. And one thing Crabtree also points out, I'll just toss in there, is he says, in most relationships, especially in marriage, uh, the relationship began with lots of affirmation and very little criticism, right? You know, just the fact that the person is interested in you, they want to marry you. But what happens over time is the affirmation goes down and the criticism goes up. And it crosses paths at some point and it becomes of the way and a goal should be to reverse that that to affirm the good work of God no it's not perfect and I even explained this to a person one time saying that if they were to find a mango tree on the moon 
would that be noteworthy? Are you going to point out the fact that the moon is barren mostly? Or are you going to say, this is a miracle. There's a mango tree with mangoes on it on the moon. Well, if someone who is by nature a selfish sinner can produce some fruit, we should get really excited about that and affirm that rather than criticizing the barrenness of the rest of their life. And he would say, even in terms of common grace, my son who lives at home is not a believer, but in common grace, he can be diligent, trustworthy, good with his money. And, and that, too, is giving glory to God for the common grace in his life. And it is powerful. Just to give you a concrete example, that we're sitting watching something on television, and I just say, hey, Daniel, you know, I really appreciate how you're good at such and such. And the next thing I know on Facebook, my dad, Jim Neuheiser, says, boom, that's instructive. So affirm the other person, not just criticize them. You is understand the interests of others. Philippians 2, you know, and regard others as more important than yourselves. And a lot of times when you're in a conflict, what are you doing when the other person's talking? You're reloading, right? <laughs> you know, you're not paying attention to them... Your, your mentality is, if they were just listening to me, if they would be quiet and let me talk, this would all be fine. And the scripture says, in a, in as Christ in his humility considered us and our interests above his own as he went to the cross, that we should care about what they think. Proverbs 20 talks about how the, the thoughts of a man are like a deep well, but a person of understanding draws it out. So can you explain the person's perspective, the other person's perspective? Are you working to understand that and show them that you do understand that rather than just interrupting rudely and pressing on for your side? Uh, search for creative solutions. A great biblical example of that is Daniel when he didn't want to eat the food in Babylon. So you know, he, he said, well, what's the concern of the guard? Well, the concern of the guard is we don't get scrawny and he gets in trouble. So he devised a solution where we'll eat the vegetables, and if we look okay, then everybody's interested in being served here. So if I understand the other person, how can I come up with a solution that will be acceptable to them but will also meet my concerns and then evaluate options objectively and reasonably um, rather than I'm coming in and I'm wanted this way? From the standpoint of the Word of God, would God be dishonored if I compromised on this one? And there's sometimes it's really my pride, my sense of fairness to myself that holds me back rather than a concern and a passion for the glory of God. Then, as we are in the midst of conflict, hatred stirs up strife, love covers all transgressions. Love covers a multitude of sins. The proverb also says, believe in chapter 19, it's a glory to overlook a matter. It's a good thing. And, and I, I've, as I've been working on this in my own life, uh, there are times now, and my closest relationship was with Caroline, some of you ladies will hear her talk, when she will do something that I don't like, and it's actually enjoyable in a sense to say, I see she sinned. I see she said something or did something that, in my opinion, was wrong. But I can... In, in kindness and in trying to reflect, I can just make a decision right now, I'm going to overlook this and forgive it and leave it. And you have to do that or you're going to be constantly correcting each other. And it honors God to do this, to make these, I'm sure she's doing it for me thousands of times. Uh, actually, I'm even aware of it some of the time. So be willing 
uh, to the sacrifice, sometimes you're right for the sake of peace. Don't be a thin-skinned person who stands on his rights. It's a fool who loses his temper. And we should be humble. Aren't we glad that God does not treat us as our sins deserve and that he does not bring up every one of our inequities against us? We would be overwhelmed even to know how sinful we really are. And then, as we do that, it's, we're trusting God. It's not, I don't have to be defending my interests all the time. As Jesus uh, entrusted himself to him who judges righteously when he felt that he was mistreated. And then, a very crucial point, and it's the one I'll dwell on before we take our break, is the first big step in a conflict is, as you know, get the log out of your own eye. Uh, Typically, when a couple comes in, they look at me as a referee, (laughs) and one will start, and Mrs. So-and-so will say, well, let me tell you about my husband. He's lazy. He's sloppy. And she'll try to lay into him. And and her point is going to be, you need to see that this is really all his fault. And then Mr. So-and-so, if I let him, would say, well, let me tell you about my wife. She's arrogant. She's judgmental. Da-da-da-da. She's cold. And I will often stop and say, okay, well, here's the ground rule. Right at the beginning of the session, I'm going to read this passage here. Jesus says that first you need to take the log out of your own eye before you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. So here's the ground rule. Uh, I want you to summarize the problem, each of you, you, Mr. then Mrs., and the rule is you can only talk about your sin right now. Now, Jesus says after you get the log out of your own eye, you can talk about the speck in your brother's eye, and we'll talk about that at the end of the day in terms of restoring. But the rule right now is only thing you are allowed to talk about is what sin do you have that's contributing to the problems in this relationship. Now, this is an assignment that's often performed badly. So, well, my sin is I keep putting up with her, is what I often hear. Um, but Jesus makes it very plain. You must deal with your own sin first. And, and when I'm in conflict, this is something I really try to put into my own mind as well. It's very rare in my life that I've been involved in a conflict where I have no fault whatsoever. Uh, and if there is one, I can't think of it right now. One reason is is that when people mistreat me, I tend to respond in my heart sinfully. And I usually, I, I'd be a very bad poker player. It, it's on my face. It might come out in my words. And, and so when I'm in the midst of a conflict, it, it, it takes reflection, being slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen, but to, to you know, search me, O God, know my heart, Psalm 139, to examine my heart, where have I contributed? And one of the main ways I can almost always say is I should have been more sensitive to you and to your feelings in this situation. I should have worked harder to understand you. I'm not admitting there's no fault on the other side. But if it's 90% their fault and 10% my fault, what should I do? I confess my 10%. Now, that's often healing. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And for you to go and say, I realize here, even though you just yelled at me, and accused me of being a pathetic pastor and a bad friend or whatever you just did in your rage, for me to say, I realize I should have worked harder to understand your feelings in this matter. I realize I spoke insensitively or too hastily. Will you forgive me? Uh, that God often uses, uses that in a very powerful way. Now, you can't lie. You can't say, yes, I'm wrong. I, I, I did this just to offend you. you. You can't tell a lie. You have to be honest about it. But Honestly, there's almost always some sin in me. 
in the midst of a conflict. I said, I would say always, because I can't remember an exception, I'm the chief of sinners. I know my own heart. I know my own pride. But also recognizing it's not just what we do, that our sin comes from the heart. You know well passages like Matthew 15, that the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, slanders, etc. And so my problem is in my heart. You know, James 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Isn't it great there's a verse that answers that question? Yeah, we'd like to know, why do we quarrel? It says the problem is the desires that wage war inside of you. You desire something and you don't get it, so you kill. I don't think James meant literally people were dropping dead in the churches where he was ministering, but he's going back to what Jesus says, that anger is murder and, and harsh words are murderous. And so you face up seriously to the sin in your own heart and, and you confess that sin. And, and first you confess it to God, by the way. As David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned after he committed adultery and murder. And so your, your big sin, many people just see conflict horizontally, like, well, I was impatient with my other wife, so I need to seek her forgiveness. That much is true. But my impatience with my wife is a sin first against God. And I need to seek his forgiveness for my taking the seat of a judge and one who has received such mercy, showing so little mercy to somebody else. Repent before God of that. Then I go to her and seek her forgiveness. And, and the Bible says you've got to go soon. You know, again, Matthew 5, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, you remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother. Then come present your offering. Jesus is saying, he's, he's using the importance of worship, saying that even your worship, which is like the most important thing, should be interrupted if you know someone has something wrong against you and you haven't dealt with it yet. Uh, the assignment I will usually give a couple who are in the midst of a conflict is we begin to uncover some of the logs. Okay, I want each of you to write down a list of your logs, make a log list of your sins in this relationship. And you may have a whole lumber yard full of logs. Write down your list, confess it to God, and then confess it to each other and seek each other's forgiveness. And I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. So sadly, sometimes they come back and they've not done it. And I take, you can't wait for this. Oh, we were too busy. What were you too busy doing? Uh, how much TV did you watch this week? How much email, Facebook? This is an urgent matter. And it has to be taken care of quickly. You, the Word of God makes that very, very plain. Now, peacemaking must be done well. We've talked about the root of the sin in your own heart. Um, and a very helpful tool that Ken Sandy came up with is what he calls the seven A's of confession. Probably quite a few of you familiar with that. Or you, have you heard of that before? Um, I find it an amazing tool because what I find is there are a lot of relationships where people, I would say, mow the weeds. You know, like in my garden, which grows 365 days of the year, uh, that means weeds grow 365 days of the year. <laughs> and I've had before in our side yard, we had a garden there that we just ignored for a while, and it's overgrown with weeds. I can take my little weed whacker, and I can mow that thing down 
to where it looks a lot better. But what's going to happen? They're going to come right back. I've not really dealt with it. In most relationships, all they ever do is mow the weeds. I'm sorry, it's okay. On they go. And they've never really rooted the thing out. And I think what Ken has come up with in terms of what does it mean to really pull the weeds? What does it really mean to address sin thoroughly and biblically, again, first to God, but then to the other person, and the seven A's mainly do with the other person, is to say, I want to totally eradicate this sin so that you can totally forgive this sin. And I'll use a concrete example. And had a, a guy, we had a couple come in, and he had been, let's call him Stan, had been unfaithful to his wife, Sherry. And Sherry had found out about it when she went to her car one day. She'd parked at a restaurant or something, and she found on her windshield a handwritten note from the other woman describing the affair that had gone on for over a year with Sherry's husband, Stan. And she took this note home and showed it to Stan and said, is this true? He says, yeah, it's true. I ended it. She's mad. That's why you gave the letter. I'm sorry. Forget about it. You might say he barely even clipped the weeds with such an apology. And, and yet she had a Christian friend who said, well, why are you still upset about this? You should have just forgiven him. And they came in saying, what should we do? And as we went through, I said, well, the, I, she does need to be gracious, but he's not really dealt with it yet. Luke 17 says, if your brother sin, re, sins and he repents, you forgive him. Reconciliation can't take place fully until the other party repents. And just saying, I'm sorry, forget about it about adultery doesn't really measure up to biblical repentance. And so as we went through this case with them, and you could apply it to any significant sin, uh, we went through these over multiple sessions, you know, address everyone involved. It's not just Sherry who was affected, is it? Their kids saw the alienation, the weeping, the, the trouble in the family. I had another case where the couple actually, after the wife had been unfaithful, they were separated for over a year. And so uh, when they were reconciled and when the wife repented, it wasn't just her husband, but the children, the in-laws, other people, the church, the community. And, and you're ready to go wherever you have to go because you want to make it right. Avoid if, but, and maybe. If you want to know how not to do an apology, listen to a politician or an athlete after they got caught, right? <laughs> well, if I offend anybody by my racist remarks, I'm sorry. Um... You know, or I've got this disease, this anger disease, this drunkenness disease, this sex disease, whatever they claim to have had. It's very rare to hear an apology that really doesn't use, well, you know, I'm sorry I was unfaithful to you, but you, know, you were really just so cold that I couldn't help myself in going somewhere else. There are no excuses. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will provide the way of escape. Galatians 5, 16, if you're walking by the Spirit, you're not going to carry out the desires of the flesh. Nobody can make you fleshly. You choose to be fleshly. They can tempt you, but they can't force you. So no excuses. And admitting specifically, uh, in the case of adultery, it's not just the act of adultery. What many people don't understand is, is the, they call it unfaithfulness because the real issue is the betrayal of trust. You lived a lie. You told lies. You broke your wedding vows. Ephesians 4.25, don't lie to each other. We're members of one another. Speak truth to one another. There's just not just the lying. There's the neglect of the family. There's the 
neglect of the children, there's the money wasted. Sin is usually quite expensive in these situations. And so you're, you're trying to be exhaustive. And this is, but this is really a sign like 2 Corinthians 7. A person who's repentant, what zeal, what, what, you, know, you want to do whatever you can to make things right, even though it's painful for you, because you're trying to help the other person. Uh, acknowledge the hurt. You need to understand what it feels like to be the spouse who's been betrayed. We've had two cases lately where the wife is the one who was unfaithful. And what does a man feel like when his wife went somewhere else that way? And, and to, to be able to get into that, into her heart, or his heart, sorry, and, and say, I realize now what this has done to you. Uh, for the woman whose husband was faithful, how it's hard for you to ever trust me again. I realize the difficulty of this. Accept the consequences. Now, hopefully grace will cover a lot of those, but the consequence could be going along with alter your behavior. I'm never going to travel out of town without you or one of the kids with me. I want software on my phone, on my computer, everywhere else to be accountable. My email is going to be an open book. My life's going to be an open book. You know, I want to do whatever I can to minister to you in this situation and to make you confident and to make it right. You know, if you stole the money, you pay back the money. Uh, and then ask for forgiveness. Will you forgive me? Not just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry could be, I'm just so sorry. You're so sensitive. No, it's, when I seek forgiveness from my wife, when I've been impatient with her, when I've been selfish, I'm saying, will you do for me what God has done for me? Will you forgive me? And as God, by grace, forgives me, which we'll talk about in the afternoon, we'll talk about forgiveness, that I'm asking you to do for me what, what the Lord has done for me, not because I deserve it, not because I can earn it, but simply out of your grace. And, and sometimes it'll be specific. The forgiveness would be, and will you, in the case of the wife or the husband's unfaithful, will you forgive me to the extent that you would let me back into the marriage and not use your right to divorce me? And... There might be patience, and I'll give you time if you need time to see if I've really repented and changed. Often when you are the one who seeks forgiveness in this way, the Lord uses this to help the other person to do it as well. Have you seen that, right? When you, when you say, I see here I was impatient. I see here I was insensitive. Will you forgive me? Oftentimes, the gentle answer turning away wrath, the other person is brought along both to forgive you and to acknowledge their own sin. Sometimes with unbelievers, they don't know what to do with you, right? <laughs> because they've never had anybody humble themselves that way before them. And that can be part of our witness to them. Uh, in many relationships, there's a huge unweeded garden. And it's going to take a lot of time to pull all those weeds. Uh, the way I picture it for them is that, you know, you, if, again, I've got, this, I've got a giant garden and the thing hasn't been messed with in three years and it's going to take hours and hours to pull those weeds and to you know, put the gospel roundup on them. And, uh, and it, there's effort, and there may be many, many sessions and meetings to, to deal with you know, 30 years of marriage where nothing has ever really been resolved in a biblical way. And, and part of your goal is going to be at the end, is there anything else for which I need to seek your forgiveness? I want things to be completely right between us. And, and when you get to the point where the garden's pretty well weeded, are you done? No, you need to learn to have a passionate hatred for weeds. That now you just can't stand it. And, and that's something I'm so thankful God has blessed me with in my marriage, is we can't stand weeds. At least, actually, if you looked at it, you are not literal weeds, but spiritual weeds. 
that um, when there is a conflict, we don't want to let the sun go down our anger. We want to pull that weed while it's small and keep the thing. But because we're sinners, we're going to have to keep pulling weeds until death parts us. But in, in a good marriage, there, there's constant, or in other relationships, you take care to continue to uh, work towards that. Now, you might say, well, what if the other person refuses to forgive you? It may be that you didn't do a very good job. It may be that you didn't do the seven A's very well. It may be mediation could help. Like in Philippians 4, when Yodi and Syntyche couldn't resolve their problems together, then Yoke fellow, whoever he was, was supposed to help them through that. Uh, ask, you know, is there something else I need? Is there something else I, for which I need to seek your forgiveness? Uh, it can be possible, especially if you're dealing with an unbeliever. And that's actually a test to some extent of any one of us. When someone wrongs us, then how do we, do, are we willing to forgive? And I, I will confess in my case, when my wife comes to me, I'd say, well, no, I'd like to stay mad a little while longer, and I'd like for you to grovel for a while, and I'd like you to do penance. But that's not the gospel. You know, as God has freely forgiven us, we're called to freely forgive. Again, more of that after lunch. But sometimes, you know, an unbeliever may not be able to do that. That's back to Romans twelve eighteen. As far as it is possible with you, to be at peace with all men. And you may do all that you can, and you may have to just pray that God will soften their heart by gospel grace. So, to conclude this first part, uh, there will be conflict in the world until Christ comes again. And the best of relationships among leaders in a church, members of a church, members of a family, there will be conflict because we're sinners working with sinners. The difference between us and the world is not that we don't have conflict, it's that God has given us in the gospel a means by which the conflict can be resolved. We need to be people who are not quarrelsome. We need to be people who uh, are humble, listening people. And then as the beginning, we need to be people who are quick to acknowledge our own sin, our own faults, to seek forgiveness from one another quickly, seeking peace in God's way. Now, you can only have peace with men if you have peace with God. The only way you can make peace God's way is to know the peace of God, that though we were sinners and though we were God's enemies, he gave his son, that through Jesus Christ, we who are enemies could be reconciled to God completely at his expense, only by grace. And if you don't know that, you can't do what I'm describing. And first you need to acknowledge your sin, your guilt, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, be freely reconciled to God, and then as those who have been forgiven much, and those who have been shown much grace, we can humble ourselves before one another, seek forgiveness, and grant forgiveness, and glorify God in our relationships. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you know our hearts. You know even today there are people here who probably have conflicts they need to resolve. Help us to be those who pursue peace in the way you've taught us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that though we were your enemies Christ has made peace at great cost. Help us to be willing to make sacrifices of our own rights, as he did, for the sake of a peace that honors you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.